and welcome to a new year of episodes for the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. On this episode, we'll be joined by SIS alum Ryan Klimek. Ryan is the Major League Pitching Strategy Coach for the Baltimore Orioles. When we had Adley Rutschman on last year, he talked about how important Ryan was to the Orioles' success. So I thought it would be cool to learn more about who he is and what he does. There will be some players in MLB this season that had a lot of success overseas in Japan and Korea. Our Asian baseball scouting expert, Brandon Tu, will join us to talk about that. And we'll also hear from SIS VP of Baseball, Bobby Scales, about the Hall of Fame elections. We start the show with Ryan Klimek, Major League Pitching Strategy Coach for the Baltimore Orioles. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Mark. How's it going? Thanks for having me. We're good. And so first of all, this is our first opportunity to talk to you. First opportunity to talk to someone who's in this role. You're from upstate New York. You went to a Division three school, SUNY Geneseo. Go Knights. Where did your passion for baseball and specifically pitching strategy come from? I think my, my passion for baseball stems from my family background. My dad played at Ithaca College. My brother was drafted by the Orioles in 2015. He went to St. Bonaventure University. So those two got a little bit more of the talent gene than I did, but I still had the the fandom that, that they did as well. So, I mean, so much of our childhood was spent visiting ballparks near Rochester, Toronto, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, all those places. So when I got to college, decided to major in, in math and initially wanted to be a, a math teacher, but I decided that there's another side of baseball that I'm really interested in, and it was more on the analytical side. So it's kind of where, where the passion where the passion stems from, kind of how I got into the, the industry a little bit in the, the college years. The pitching strategy side, that was really kind of by chance. When Brandon Hyde got brought on, we kind of divided the advanced scouting department into run creation and run prevention. And just so happened that I was on the run prevention side and kind of made that the main focus of all my energy and passion and took me in this direction. And as an interesting kind of note, you're you're baseball playing career ended pretty early, relatively speaking, right? Yeah, I mean, really just mainly through high school varsity baseball. Messed around with some fall ball at Keuka College, my first D3 school. But I was a admittedly more talented basketball player than baseball. So yeah, did not play professionally, but have been lucky to find an avenue that has fit me really well. It's It's been incredible. Before we dive into the Orioles stuff, you worked for other teams too in their minor league capacities, the Mariners and the Angels. You also worked for our company, which is kind of a neat connection back in 2014. What were some of the things you took away from those jobs that got you to where you are now? I didn't have a ton of baseball experience when I was in college. I, I, I loved the game. I'd watch the game. I majored in that. But I really did not have a ton on my resume that could support me getting a job with a major league baseball team. So I, I saw your guys' company looking for video scouts and it was really a great fit. Kind of helped me get my feet in the door of just kind of the data and science behind the game. I watched a ton of baseball that summer, multiple games a day, but I, I remember those days really fondly and just being exposed to the data side of things as well as just watching baseball every single day really familiarizing yourself with the league. I, I think that was one of the biggest benefits for me was that I was able to just acquaint myself with players that maybe I wouldn't watch when I was sitting at home. What did you get out of working with the Mariners and the Angels? So those were the, the two the two first tastes of professional baseball that I that I got. I, I was with the Mariners in 2015 as a double A video intern. 
that was just drinking water out of a fire hydrant. Just the exposure to professional players and the process and what goes into it every single day in the clubhouse was really eye-opening. And after the the Mariners internship had ended, being able to go to the Angels and work in the front office there and contribute on the advanced scouting side as well as like the the amateur draft, sitting in on those meetings. It was it was a really cool two years where I was able to expose myself to all different avenues of baseball operations, player development, amateur scouting, advanced scouting. So it was it was just really just a lot of learning and, and taking it all in. It was really special. We've been doing work with the Orioles since 2017, which means that you've not only seen the best of times, which happened this past year, and we'll certainly talk about that, but you've seen the worst of times too. 2018, 2019, the team lost 115 and 108 games. But you had to have gotten something out of that because you stuck it out. What did you get out of working those two years, the team that struggled so much? In 2017, I was down in Sarasota for the year, got to see really where it all starts for these guys on the way to to Baltimore. And then 2018, I was much closer to the major league product where I was in the clubhouse first year as an advanced scout. It was very eye-opening to me to just be exposed to that that side of the clubhouse and the intensity of every single day. And yeah, our window had kind of closed from those 2012 to 2018 years. And it, it, it was tough. Like, admittedly, it was, it was tough. But it, at the same time, it was my first year where I was still learning so much. And then once we, once we hired Brandon Hyde and Mike Elias in 2019, really the, the process changed significantly. And I couldn't be more grateful to, to see this thing from, from the bottom to present day. And the work that Mike and Brandon have done with just instituting analytics and, you know, our advanced process is very crisp and clean right now that I, those, those years were painful, but at the same time, it gave us some opportunity to try some new things and take our time. And I think the results have, have kind of shown itself over the last two seasons. So your current role is major league pitching strategy coach. What does someone with that role do? So. From 2019 to 2021 and kind of into part of 2022, I was kind of your traditional advanced scout where I do all the, I do the scouting reports on the opposing hitters, formulate the game plan, and then try to convey that to our pitchers pregame as simple as I could. In 2022, kind of moved into a, a new role where they threw me in the dugout and the the real kind of reasoning behind it is that we do all this conversation and preparation before the game, but then once we once we get into the game, I'm not quite there to be a, a reference. So it's it's really kind of similar type of things that I was doing as an advanced scout, but now it's it's just a little bit more that I'm I'm there for the players to rely on in game when things pop up and second time through the order or you know just questions on on certain hitters. I'm I'm there present for them to to answer questions so what what are you working with you're working with data you're working with video you're working with heat maps i would imagine what are the different things at your disposal that you're willing to share yeah you know i think that the analytics department does so much work for us and and they make my job significantly easier than just relying on my on my thoughts and my brain and whatnot so we're in lockstep all season and and they provide tons of references for me to use help keep things simple for 
both the the pitchers and for the catchers too, because they're the ones that are putting down the signs. So, or nowadays pressing the button. So I I work with those guys all the time. I, I can't speak highly enough of Daniel Martin and the the work that he's done for us. But it's it's really kind of it's trusting the data that's in front of you as as kind of the the long term picture of of you know how we want to attack guys. But at the same time, being able to use all those years of watching the opposing hitters and understanding the adjustments that they've made and and what they look like present day versus who they looked like two years ago or three years ago. To me, I just kind of I kind of blend that all all into my head and, and come to a concise, simple way of relaying it to both the pitchers and the catchers. So we had Adley Rutschman on the podcast last year and he spoke highly of you. He said you're the voice of reason, which gets to I think what you're what you're talking about. Clem's awesome, man. I mean, he helps out with all the all the pitch calling, game planning, and really is like a, a voice to like streamline stuff from the relievers to starters to catchers and make sure like everyone's kind of like ha- like on a similar wavelength. Everyone has like their own individual thoughts, usually about like game planning, but he's kind of the, you know, voice of reason talking to like everyone and trying to get everyone more on the same page, which I think is it's it's awesome and it helps in game and you know when we're when we're doing like meetings what's an example and you could just say we could just say hitter x i guess in this case what's an example of a conversation that you're having with adley rutschman or james mccann or whoever and the pitching coaches uh, about hitter x i think i try to keep it as as simple as i as i can for both rutsch and mccann these are two guys that i work with every single day probably more than than the pitchers to be honest with you and just try to keep it simple for them because I know that those guys have a lot going through their head during the game. They, they've got to call the pitches and still play defense and still hit. So there's a lot going on there. I, I think like what I try to understand is and try to convey in a simple form is you have certain guys that I just feel, for example, confident that we can spin a lot. And I think at times there's there might be a human instinct to maybe deviate from a plan and whatnot, but it's really trusting the work that we've done going into the game, identifying the weakness of the hitter, and and sticking to that plan unless there's really good reason to to deviate from it. How receptive were players to you when you first started essentially in a role like this? It's a good question. You know, there's something that I can never changes that I I never played in the big leagues or never played in the minor leagues. It's just kind of, you know, that's my background and it, it kind of is what it is. And I, and I acknowledge that there's, there's an experienced part of the playing side that I'll never be able to replace. But I, I've, I've been in the clubhouse for quite a while now since 2018. And I, I think that, you know, it, as long as if you come prepared and you're knowledgeable about the work that you've done, you'll, you'll gain the respect and the attention of, of others. So that's really what I've had to do is to just control what I can control. And that is to put in the effort every day into, to know these teams and what our game plan is as well as I possibly can. And then over time, those, those things, you gain trust with people. So that's kind of where, where we are now, where I'm, I'm humbled and, and so grateful to, to be able to kind of have this role with the lack of playing experience that I have. And be able to have these guys respect me and the work that I do and, and what I can bring to help us try to win a game that night. Take a pitcher as an example, and you mentioned that you work more closely with the catchers, but when someone like Kyle Bradish pitches, now, when you're game planning for him and you're trying to create something and you're looking at the opposing lineup, 
he had an interesting season in that he wasn't necessarily thought of as a an ace caliber pitcher at the start of the season, but by the end of the season, he had gotten pretty close to that level. And his usage changed 22 to 23, more sinkers, a number of things changed with how he pitched. How did your game plan for him at game to game evolve as you discovered things about how good he could be? We we treat every every pitcher differently because they are all different. So the the main thing that we we want to make sure of beyond getting too sophisticated or too in depth with creating a game plan is that the the pitchers are using their strengths in what they do well. And I think that you know it kind of towards the end of twenty twenty two, you know Kyle was messing around with the sinker a bit. And we saw it kind of get into into the mix a bit more heavily in 23. And it's it's pretty publicly you know known that he can really spin it in two different ways. So um, sometimes it's really just being able to recognize what these guys do really well. And to Kyle's credit, he he was able to really kind of hone in on on the command of both the two seam and his breaking balls that it gave us options for how we want to use these pitches and kind of the, the the confidence and conviction that he could have throwing them in certain counts that he might have been uncomfortable throwing them beforehand. So, you know, I think I think for my job, it, it's it's important to understand what the pitcher does well and that we want to use that. We might turn some knobs here and there depending on the hitter of how many, you know, breaking balls he sees versus fastballs or changeups. But a lot of it was Kyle being able to really command those pitches and and be comfortable using them in spots he might not have been ready to use them in in his first season. A lot like you're playing chess when you're in the dugout a little bit. Is that what it is? A bit. A bit. Yeah. I you know, I think that we're we're pretty scientific in the way that we do things. But at the same time I, I do think that there's, you know, a, a piece of it where it, it's still it's still a game and, and you might have to make some adjustments as as you gather more information. But this that's kind of the reason why I got into this, and I, I never imagined myself being in a major league dugout. That's that was never <laughs> you know in, in my career plan when I left SIS. But it's it's been pretty unbelievable to like see it play out in this form where I do feel like I'm using kind of the analytical side of my brain and the math background, and at the same time you know still recognizing that it's it's a game and and being able to. But all those years of, of watching video to to use as well. Three three quick things to to finish here. What's your best? I was in the dugout story from last year. Like, did someone run over? Did someone run over you trying to get your foul ball? Anything crazy happen? Best dugout story. I, I, I'm I'm going to be honest. Sometimes those balls are hit so hard at the dugout that you know it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, uh, especially when when I'm standing there with with no glove or any protection besides a piece of paper in my hand. Yeah, I, I think that like when those when those guys started to do the sprinkler that became viral when extra base hit for for our guys, that was pretty funny to be a part of or to, to witness the first time the first few times that it happened. It was it was a great celebration. It it was super fun and, and <laughs> my goodness, did it catch on with multiple facets even the implementation of the bird bath in the outfield like it it really caught on so that was cool to be a part of and, and see that happen the first time yeah between that and the the song from the wire that they played when your closer would come in before he got hurt a lot of cool extra kind of stuff there 
What advice do you have for someone pursuing a baseball career? I think I, I kind of look back at at the days, especially the, my time in, in Anaheim. And, you know, I, I think it's just to be prepared for the hours, honestly. I think that when you once you get into this game, you sacrifice a lot of things in life, missing weddings or tons of family events, summer holidays and things of that sort that just if if you're going to commit, then fully commit and be ready for it to to kind of take away from those types of things. It's not all glamour. Yeah, I, I know that you might see the, the major league clubhouse and the dugout and all that type of stuff. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Don't get me wrong, but there, there's plenty of days where it's, it's really long and then you got a rain delay and you don't get back to the hotel until 2.30 a.m. or you got a flight somewhere else afterwards. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I would just, I would encourage people to, to really, if they're going to get into it, it, it's just full commitment. I, I think that the hours pay off and, and just really be ready to, to grind and to, to listen. I've been so lucky to work with so many different people in this game that it's just great to hear, you know, their experience, their perspective on things and always be willing to, to listen and adapt. So, and last thing, what does a coach like you do during the winter? During the winter? Well, you know, I, I, I fully support the Buffalo Bills, so I'm I'm still reeling. <laughs> okay, that's 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 where I'm at right now. Being from Rochester, Bills yep. country, it's been a tough tough couple of days here. I'm sure, but from the work the work side of things, you know, it's it's a lot of ad hoc stuff from from the front office with with certain tasks that they might might provide me and might be looking into our guys and, and what maybe we could have done differently usage wise last year. Might be you know taking a look at a free agent that. We think that we could do something different with, but now as we get closer to spring training, kind of turning the attention, really focusing on our guys, our player plans, things that we want to institute this year, catching up with guys on what they're, they've been working on in the offseason and kind of starting to let the wheels turn in my head already about how we can how we can use these weapons that guys have differently next year than maybe we did last year. Ryan Klimek, pitching strategy coach for the Baltimore Orioles, SIS alum. We're proud of that. We're glad you were able to join us. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Mark. I, I appreciate it. Brandon Chu is an operations associate and our Asian baseball scouting expert here at Sports Info Solutions. He's doing full-scale, highly comprehensive scouting reports on all the NPB and KBO players who have signed an MLB this offseason. You can find them on our website. We're going to talk about them with Brandon now. Hey, Brandon. Hey, Mark, how you doing? I'm good. So let's lay the groundwork here. When we say that you've scouted a starting pitcher or a relief pitcher or a position player from NPB or KBO, how much have you watched? Yeah, if it's a starter, I've most likely watched 90% of their starts, if not more, probably all of them. And if it's a reliever, I've, I've probably watched like 40 or 50 outings. And then, you know, same with hitters, probably 40, 50 games, if not more. So yeah, it's a lot of games. And this is possible because at SIS, this is what we do, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, charting stuff, getting scoring uh, information, that's what we do on the KBO and NPB side especially. And Brandon is certainly among our most advanced people when it comes to watching with an eye for detail. So let's start and let's show that off a little bit. Let's start with Yoshinobu Yamamoto, who got an absurd contract as basically expected. How good can he be? I think I wrote in my report, he has the chance to be a top 10, top five pitcher next year in MLB. And I didn't think that's a stretch to go that far because for me, he has three double plus offerings. So three 70 grade pitches are above and elite command. So the fastball is very, very good. 
good velo, good carry. The cutter is used less, but I still even like the cutter. And where it comes to me, the separation for him is his ability to throw his splitter and his curveball almost wherever he wants to. And he just spots pitches so well. And if you watch him through a full start, and especially through a full season, he kind of just plays around with certain times, but he just messes with hitters. He'll throw like a front hip cutter or a front hip slider. He barely threw his slider slash sweeper last year. And he'll just throw like random pitches in the middle of a bat because he just has the confidence and the command to really throw any pitch he wants and any count he wants. And that's rare to find in any pitcher. And yeah, he's just exceptional. I really think he has a chance to be a Cy Young candidate next year. Wow. So is there any red flag anywhere with him? I guess the one red flag would be like if you want to talk about it postseason performance, he'd Hasn't been that stellar. His second to last game, he gave up seven runs and had one of his worst outings in probably his entire MPB career. But then he came back and he threw a 14 strikeout, like master class, kind of exposing Hanshin in game six of, of the Japan series. So I guess the knock on him would be he's not a big game pitcher, but that's not really a knock because he's been so exceptional for most of his career that his clunkers are pretty dominant games just not as dominant as he was in the regular season so if you're a Dodgers fan or a fan of a team that's playing the Dodgers watch the splitter watch the curve and watch how he spots his pitches all right the other big name pitcher from Japan Shota Imanaga who signed with the Cubs what do we need to know about him and how good he can be yeah for him it's the fastball that stands out and he throws it a lot he threw it a lot in Japan I he threw it almost 57 percent 58 percent Close to 60, if you combine the forcing and the two-seam together, the forcing was around 55%, and that's, that's a lot of forcing fastballs, but there's a reason he's throwing it that much. It's an elite pitch with elite characteristics, you know, 20 inches of induced vertical break, carry through the top of the zone, and his release height is what separates him from a lot of different guys. He throws with a lower release height, around five and a half feet, which is pretty low for, for a guy who's throwing... From his arm slot, too, he throws him like a higher arm slot, but still gets a low release height out of it. So it's just a different look for hitters. And his fastball is what's going to probably make or break his his MLB career and when he comes over. But for me, his his ability to manipulate the baseball, and a lot like Yamamoto, but even to a more exaggerated extent, he'll just make up pitches and arm slots in the middle of a game. And he'll kind of just like make pitches up. You know, I've tracked him for a while now about two seasons and I think between me and one of my coworkers that do it together I think we've tracked like 10 different pitches from him just making stuff up yeah it, it's just unique because it's just a different look from a left-handed pitcher like the velocity might not be as high but it doesn't really matter that he's still in 91 92 because the characteristics and the stuff is so elite and you like the splitter yeah, the splitter is really good, and he actually throws like two different variations of a splitter, and then he throws also like a traditional changeup. So again, this goes back to like, could he slim down the arsenal and then will be like possibly, but he could also lean into it and just throw a bunch of different pitches and give guys a lot of different looks. And I think being on the Cubs with as much pitchability guys as they have on that team, you know, you think of Kyle Hendricks, Justin Steele, like pitchability guys. I think that's only going to help him kind of transition into MLB and maybe become like even a pitchability guy in the middle of that rotation as well. 
So like he could wind up like uh, Ubaldo Jimenez with eight or nine different pitches or Dice K or E. Darvish even. But from the left side instead of the right, with Imanaga, watch out. He provides a different look that the Cubs fans will get to see this spring and into the season. What about Naoyuki Uesawa, who got a minor league deal from the Rays when some thought that he was going to get a major league deal? Yeah, so Uesawa is interesting because he, he almost picked the Rays. He chose the Rays. He had a lot of different offers out there, and it's rumored that he had major league offers out there with more guaranteed money, and he chose to kind of go with the Rays because of the Rays' magic behind turning pitchers into really good MLB pitchers. So I'm all for Uesawa going to the Rays. I kind of projected as more like a swingman in MLB with enough durability and control to be given a shot at the back of the rotation. But with the Rays, I think he might be able to clean up his his breaking balls, get him a little bit tighter, maybe even throw the sweeper a little bit harder. He doesn't throw as hard either. He throws about 90-91. But again, it's it's elite fastball characteristics. I think the Rays, that probably really stood out to them and jumped out to them. And then it's just really good control. And, you know, if he can figure out the pitch mix, kind of maybe even... I think he should be a guy that should slim down his arsenal, maybe not throw a changeup and a split, kind of lean on the splitter more. He threw a lot of fastballs, and and while I think his fastball is really, really good, I think leaning into maybe you know helping fix the breaking pitches a little bit and separating those two can really get him to a point where I, I could see the Rays using him as like a fourth or fifth starter, but even a guy who like comes in after an opener, you know, after two innings of an opener or an inning of an opener and gives him you know, four solid innings out of, out of the pen. Like, I could see that being a, a really nice role for, for USL. And we've seen what the Rays can do. Just look at what they did last year with Zach Eflin, their free agent signing. We'll see what they do moving forward with Uesawa. Switching gears to position players, and there's one position player in particular. I was kind of like, uh, yes, no, when I saw that the Giants signed Jung-Hoo Lee. Part of me was like, okay. And then the other part of me was like, well, you know, Haseon Kim turned out pretty well coming over from the KBO. What should we make of this guy? Yeah, for Lee, the the Giants are banking on him progressing into his prime as an as a really good player. They're probably banking on two years from now him being a really good player. And that transition period might be a little bit slower. A lot like Haseon Kim. I just think offensively, he's got a a little bit of a different profile from Ha Song, his former teammate in Kiwoom. You know, he gets on base a lot. His his contact ability is is other otherworldly. Like I would compare it to Luis Arise, and Luis Arise is one of the best hitters in the game in terms of his ability to contact the baseball. And Lee would just do random things in the middle of the game, take some wild swings at pitches and, and make hard contact. And he doesn't really change his approach either, even if he gets deeper into the county still you know, swinging hard for contact and stuff like that. I, I think the transition from KBO is going to be a little bit drastic because of the jump in velo and just seeing more, I guess, better stuff, as as you would say. But, I mean, he performed in the World Baseball Classic, and while I think he's a good center fielder, and that's where the Giants should put him, if, especially if they think he's going to be a good center fielder, I think even if he gets pushed to a corner, I mean, there's a chance to be a really, really good corner outfielder uh, that provides some some value out there too so I think with his defensive value and then relying on his bat to eventually pick up to maybe add a little bit more you know exit velo power I could see that being a thing for for Lee 
But right now, he's going to be a solid player no matter what. And it's really just if the bat comes along, he becomes like an all-star type player, kind of. We'll see what he converts from. He's a, he was a 340 career hitter during his time in Korea. In your scouting report, you said Lee should turn into a solid to above average player with upside a la Jeff McNeil if he hits for more power. And if you get the good version of Je- Jeff McNeil combined with what you said with the plate discipline that, that Lee has, you're getting a very, very good player. Let's shift back to pitching and back to bullpen while we stay in the NL West. Padres signed two guys, Yuki Matsui and Wu Go, one from NPB, Matsui, one from KBO. Go, what do you got on both of them? Yeah, we'll start with Matsui because he's probably the most interesting pitcher coming over from NPB, and, and that includes Yamamoto and Imanaga. There, there's just a lot of, I guess, unknown about a guy being that small, 5'8", you know, whatever weight he is, throwing it in an MLB bullpen and succeeding. You just don't see that a lot. Like, the other comparison would be Billy Wagner got away with it at his height but I mean Matt Singh's got an electric fastball it's it's not it's not like a high velo fastball but you're gonna notice a trend with a lot of Japanese pitchers that kind of are able to get behind the baseball and and and, and backspin a fastball really well and, and he has really good carry through the zone again above average carry like 19 inches of carry at points with IVB and yeah his splitter and his slider are so good as as plus offerings off of that that I don't think he's going to have a problem facing lefties or righties out of an MLB bullpen. And I think that's his highest value is you could stick him at the back end of the bullpen to be a closer, but you could also stick him in the seventh or eighth inning and kind of just let him work through an entire you know inning of, of three outs, four outs, five outs, and not be worried about it because of how good his splitter and his slider are. Like the, spl- the slider by uh, advanced metrics and stuff plus numbers and stuff like that, Seems like a, even a better pitch than his splitter, and his splitter is absolutely nasty. Talking about Go, I think Go, it's interesting. Like his stuff is good enough to be an MLB bullpen, whether it's middle relief, you know, a little bit deeper in game, seventh, eighth inning, ninth inning. He has good stuff. His fastball's pretty good at 95, even though it stays a little flat. I almost think of him as a guy who, if he doesn't throw Mario fastballs, and I consider Mario fastballs, fastballs down the pipe, you know, right down the middle. If he doesn't throw those types of pitches and he stays to the corners and then he's able to work off of that with his, you know, cutter, his little baby cutter, and then his curveball off of that, I think he has a real good chance to be a solid reliever in MLB. And for me, Go, while he has lesser value than Matsui, I would not be surprised if he gains confidence. You know, his role steps up for the Padres. He's not pitching like a seventh or eighth inning role at some point for the Padres, especially when they need it. You need to find innings from guys somewhere. So I can see that being a thing. And having a teammate like you, Darvish, who can kind of teach you maybe a, a sweeper slider or, or something like that, it's going to be huge for him. I think Niebla and the Padres have a chance to really capitalize on the stuff that Go has and just get his control and his command to where they need it for a bulk and bulk. So we've got the complete package in Yamamoto. We've got the guy with the fastball and the splitter in Imanaga. We've got the two guys in the bullpen that you just mentioned, Matsui and Go, and it'll be curious to see how they adjust to majors. And then we've got Lee, who you like as a very good contact hitter who could add some more power. Brandon Tu, our Asian baseball expert. If you're looking for any of these articles, you can find them at sportsinfosolutions.com or, as we learned, just go to Google, type in the player's name and the words scouting report, and they should be there right at the top. They'll also be in the show notes. 
Hey, Brandon, thank you. Thanks, Mark. We bring in the VP of Baseball for Sports Info Solutions, former major leaguer, Bobby Scales. Been a while, Bobby. How you doing? It's been too long, Mark. I, you know, that it, I'm doing great. It looks like you're doing great. Justin Stein, our engineer's on here. Hello, guys. Good to be back on with you. Good to be back. And we start by talking about the Baseball Hall of Fame. Three inductees, Adrian Beltre, Joe Maurer, Todd Helton, joined Jim Leland in the Hall of Fame class. Adrian Beltre was pretty much a no-brainer. Best defensive run saved at third base of anyone since we started tracking the stat. Best of any player tied with Andrelton Simmons. Great hitter as well. What were your biggest takeaways from watching Adrian Beltre play? Just the longevity. And, and you see players that decline defensively or decline offensively over time, right? That's just, that's what happens. Father time is undefeated, right? How effective he was at third base. He went from plus, plus, plus defender to plus, plus to still plus defender at the very end of his career. And it was remarkable. You, you just, you don't see somebody just stay that proficient defensively because of all the things that go into playing defense, movement, just length of the season, just any number of things. But Adrian Beltre was elite defensively for a long, long time of his career. And personally for me, the thing that stands out for me are the plays he can make, the body control plays, you call them in, in scouting circles. It's the ball coming in, you know, the one-handed ball, uh, that 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 rolling ball, you have to bunt bare hand and, and deliver at first base. It's the one where you have the glove one-handed and deliver at the first base. It's the 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 one that I think he was just tremendous at with the, the ball you have to cut off to your left on that angle at third base and then move your feet, move your body to deliver the baseball with anything on it. Just the angles he was able to cover and then just how how much he got on his raw arm strength from a variety of angles from from across the diamond. So it just remarkable. His whole career is remarkable. His offensive production is remarkable. You know, Mark, I like guys that can hit, man. You know, we we love defense around here, man. But if you can't bang, then, you know, it's one thing. But just it was remarkable. His entire body of work, first ballot, no brainer, no issues. If anybody, the people who did not vote for him on the first ballot, you should be shamed because he is a unanimous choice for me. I think he's a unanimous choice for many. There's a certain few out there that didn't think that and you're wrong. <laughs> Another guy that was elected on the first ballot. He was a little bit more of a tough decision for some people. He won three batting titles and three gold gloves. He was a great hitter and he played catcher where you have to be very physically and mentally tough. And that's Joe Maurer, played his whole career with the Twins. From watching Joe Maurer, what were your biggest takeaways from watching him? When you're a position player and you play with a catcher that just gives you, it's not just pitchers, but it gives the entire defense ease. It gives the infielders ease. It gives the outfielders ease. It gives the manager and the dugout ease of a guy who knows what it knows what he's doing behind the dish. That's a different level of catcher. And then obviously, you know, a lot of times in, in sports, we like to make comparisons between positions. All the, you know, the catcher is the quarterback of the team. The catcher is not really the quarterback of the team. The catcher is really the center. And the reason I say that is because if you think about the responsibilities that the catcher has, the primary responsibility of any catcher is to help that pitching staff, whether it be one guy in a complete game scenario where we don't see much anymore, or be six or seven guys, which is much more today's baseball, get through the game. We got to understand these matchups. Okay, this guy's sinker is really nasty, so we're going to go here. Or this guy's four-seamer really rides through the top of the zone, so we're going to go there. Understanding all of that with all the different changes and all the different batters and the pinch hitters and understanding all of that stuff and the game plan, you know, when to follow the game plan, when to trust your gut and go go against the grain. That's the primary responsibility of a catcher. And I, I, I liken it to a center because, sure, the center stands over the ball and you've got different defensive fronts and these guys are shifting and you've got that. You've got blitzes and you've got to identify 
the linebackers or the blitzing players and you've got to slide coverage this way and you've got to slide protection that way. That's why I look at the, the catcher being the center. And, and, and it, the final parallel there is it's such an uns, unsung position. And when you find a great one, they stick out because they're so good at it. The Jeff Saturdays of the world, the Jason Kelsey's of the world, the Mike Webster go way back in the day. Those guys, the White Stevenson from the Dolphins way back when, right? Those guys stick out and they're Hall of Famers. Joe Maurer is one of those guys, right? Then if you layer what he was able to do defensively and commanding the game from that position, but then what he's able to do with the bat, it was special. He wasn't a power guy and it wasn't his game. And I think he was wise to just be who he was. Hit the 28 homers in 09, won the MVP, yes. But just so proficient in the box, always put a good at bat together, never looked like a guy like he was ever fooled on a pitch. He was all, he was just so proficient in the batter's box. Handled right and left-handed pitching. It was just, uh, he's a Hall of Famer. That's what Hall of Famers do, and that's why it's special to get in. Other parallel between a center and a catcher, it's a physically uncomfortable position. Oh, I'm sure. Yep. And Joe Maurer moved to first base later in his career. Another first baseman that got into the Hall of Fame, Todd Helton. Took him a little while. Great hitter. We've seen the perception of things related to the Colorado Rockies change. He's a lifetime Colorado Rocky. Also a gold glove winner. What are your recollections of watching him? Just uh, he looked like a dude when he's one of those guys when he looked like when he's walking to the plate, it looked like it was going to be a double or homer every at bat, just scary, handled every pitch in the zone. I mean, breaking pitches, heaters. And, and I'm so glad that people just saw through the nonsense that was the Colorado factor. Just just do it. Not even a deep dive. Just peel back a couple layers and see what he did at other ballparks. See what he did on the road. I mean, come on. The guy wasn't he was an absolute rake. And he could just, I mean, just, he instilled fear in established pitchers. I like that you said that he, he looked like a double. I think that's a, a good way to describe it. He looked like yeah. a double when he came to the plate. And then there's another guy that kind of fits. I think Gary Sheffield looked like a hard hit ball every time he came to the plate. Coaches moved back. He didn't get in. He didn't get in on the 10th try. What was? What's your perspective on Gary Sheffield as it relates to the Hall of Fame? They got it wrong. That's my perspective. <laughs> Gary Sheffield's a Hall of Famer. I think what Gary Sheffield is, is suffering from, this is my opinion and my opinion alone. I think he was a, a man who was going to say what he had to say. If you didn't like what he had to say, he didn't much care. Now, I'm sure that there were some times where he rubbed beat reporters and other members of the media their own way. And that, that you know, that's, he, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't care about that. You were going to get the unadulterated truth from him. And, and sometimes that was uncomfortable probably to deal with and probably to write about and, and here. That said, 22 years in the big leagues, the things that he's done, I mean, we can list them off. We'd be here till Wednesday. He's a Hall of Famer. Yes. You want to, you want to talk Balco? Let's go there. Let's talk Balco. He said he, he, he owned it. He said he did it for a very short period of time. And he's, I think he's handled it as well, if not better than anybody who's been caught up in that scandal. And so for me, he's a Hall of Famer. It's not close. It's, it's pretty obvious numbers wise he is. And not just offensively, too. I mean, he had some impact defensively. I mean, he was a shortstop, wasn't a particularly good one. He moved to the outfield and became a, uh, an, a more than adequate outfielder during the course of his career and even played some first base at times during his career. So, you know, I, I definitely think that that Gary Sheffield's a Hall of Famer. He's going to get in at some point. I think the Veterans Committee will take care of it. I hate that that he didn't that he had to go that route, but he'll be a Hall of Famer. I think he should have got in, particularly in this class. I think that it's interesting when you look at Veterans Committee inductees, and Fred McGriff is a recent example of this, and I think Fred McGriff had a lot of people on the Veterans Committee that were sympathetic to his cause. Not necessarily friends, just people that viewed him 
in a positive way. And I'm curious, when you get to the Veterans Committee, it includes Hall of Famers, it includes a variety of people. I'm curious how they will view him in the future and whether that that will help push him or whether he'll just kind of be almost kind of guy. Yeah, look, time will tell. I, you know, Fred McGriff, don't get me. I, I was on the Fred McGriff's Hall of Famer long before 493 home runs and hit another 17 in the postseason. There's your 500 yep. right there. He was damn near close to being being a 500 home run guy in his right. regular season home runs. But then, I mean, you just, I, I don't see, I, and I, I have a problem with that with the Hall. That's a whole other, maybe that's a whole other show, like uh, in and of itself. But, right. but I, guess right. I'm a, I guess I'm a big Hall guy and that's, I'm going to remain that way because if you, you earn it, you earn it. I know a lot of big ball people. I tend to lean big ball as well. There's one other guy that you wanted to talk about, a guy that was great at the end of games, Billy Wagner. Billy Wagner's a Hall of Famer. They got this one wrong too. It's just, <laughs> that's just, that's how I look at it. I mean, we, we can go numbers, we can go longevity, we can go to the fact that at 38 years old in 2010, he was just over it as a baseball player and didn't want to play anymore. And that's fine because at that point, he was in his 16th year in the league. Oh, and by the way, he was seven and two. With a 143 RA, 69 innings pitched, 37 saves, and a .865 whip dominance in his last year at 38. Still throwing absolute buzz from the left side. Punched out 13 and a half per nine that year. He did the Ortiz. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and then you look at the, the the course of his career, 422 saves. I mean, he, the man pitched in postseasons. What are we doing here? He, he's a Hall of Famer. Period. Full stop. I like that your opinions are very definitive. And we look to next year's ballot, and I think that there are some guys that are pretty easily definitive to Ichiro Suzuki is going to be on the ballot. That's a fairly easy one for everyone. We don't even have to discuss it. I think it gets a little tougher when you talk about the guys that are in kind of that next tier. And do you want to acknowledge CC Sabathia? And I think he'll be a voting test for a lot of people. You acknowledge that you're a big hall guy just a second ago. Does that make you a yes on Sabathia? I, I, it makes me a very much so a yes on Sabathia for a lot of reasons. 251 wins. You know, three seven four ERA. People love the points of the ERA, and I'm like three seventy four. Okay, that's fine. It's not like he's got a four, you know, four and a quarter ERA. That's a different story. Three seventy four over the course of nineteen major league seasons is pretty doggone good. And for me, it's not just the three seventy four ERA. It's not the two hundred fifty one wins. It's the amount of innings he absolutely ate. Right, thirty five hundred and seventy seven innings as a starting pitcher, and he and CC went to the post uh, unless he couldn't go to the post. Right. It's the heroic stuff he did. That 2008 run with the Brewers at the back end of that year when he came in and was absolutely dominant, then hit the big home runs. I can't remember if it was down the stretch or in the playoffs, but he was pitching that game it was late in the game. He hits a home run, then goes out and then finishes the game or what have you. I, I, I may be getting the facts wrong, but it felt it was it was heroic. And there's Brewer fans to this day that will talk about that second half run they made and how much they love CC for coming in and putting that pitching staff and that team on their on the, on his back and saying, hey, I got it, boys, let's go. Sure, one season and one heroic second half does not a Hall of Fame career make, but if you look at the rest of his his career, I think it, it absolutely warrants Hall of Fame. Is it first ballot? I don't know. What I do know is he should end up in the Hall of Fame. CC Sabathia will be a very interesting candidate heading into the next Hall of Fame balloting, this year's Hall of Fame balloting complete. We We'll be looking forward to next baseball season, the one that's coming up this year, on our next episode. Bobby, good to talk to you. We'll catch up with you down the road. Always a pleasure, Mark. And this wraps up our episode for this month. A reminder that you can find our articles online at sportsinfosolutions.com and fieldingbible.com, as well as in the show notes. Follow us on Twitter at SIS underscore baseball. Our next episode will be in February. 
we'll start looking ahead to 2024. It's also Black History Month, we always like to touch on that. For Ryan Klimek, Brandon Two, Bobby Scales, and our producer Justin Stein, thank you for listening to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.